Welcome to Healthy Aging with South Coast Health, the podcast that shows you how to live a longer and healthier life, showcasing doctors, clinicians, and patient stories. The goal of South Coast Health is to help and inspire you to navigate your health journey with knowledge, comfort, and ease. Hello, everyone. I'm Patricia Raskin. Welcome to Healthy Aging with South Coast Health. My guest today is Dr. Peter Cohen, an invasive cardiologist at South Coast Health and the physician-in-chief of the Cardiovascular Care Center at Charlton Memorial Hospital in Fall River, Massachusetts. He earned his medical degree from the University of Medicine and Dentistry of New Jersey Rutgers Medical School. He completed a residency in internal medicine at Rhode Island Hospital in Providence, Rhode Island, and a fellowship in cardiology at UMass Memorial Medical Center in Worcester, Mass. Dr. Cohen is an invasive cardiologist who performs diagnostic cardiac catheterizations, as well as pacemaker and defibrillator implants at the Interventional Cardiology Department at South Coast. He's board certified in cardiology and is certified by the Heart Rhythm Society for device implants. Welcome, Dr. Cohen. Thank you. Thank you for having us. What makes the Heart and Vascular Center at Charlton Memorial Hospital the region's leader for heart care? We offer uh, complete comprehensive services at the Heart and Vascular Center. Our link between cardiology, cardiac surgery, and vascular surgery. Many institutions, cardiology is part of the Department of Medicine, and cardiac surgery and vascular surgery are part of the Department of Surgery. At South Coast, we're linked together. So we're our own care center. And what does that mean? It means that we're able to completely take care of all aspects of cardiovascular disease, whether you need medical therapy, interventional cardiology therapy, advanced vascular surgery, or cardiac surgery. And we all work. Um, So we do offer comprehensive cardiovascular services uh, here at South Coast and and centered at Charlton Memorial Hospital. We have an advanced cardiac cath lab. We are the uh, region's leading center for taking care of acute uh, myocardial infarctions or heart attacks coronary interventions uh, per year, about 1,200 diagnostic cardiac catheterizations. Our EP, electrophysiology lab, is is the busiest in the region. Uh, We perform uh, advanced electrophysiology, including ablations, which also includes some very cutting-edge procedures, which have been featured on both local and national news. We also uh, uh, implant devices, which I I also um, participate in, in terms of stabilizing heart rhythm and also delivering electrical shocks to prevent lethal cardiac arrhythmias. The last thing I was going to just say is about our structural heart program, where we implant cardiac valves in a non-surgical approach. We're also the region's leading center for structural heart and valvular heart disease. What are some of the things that you do that are very common conditions that come to you that you really encounter in the office and in the hospital? So probably our most common medical condition that we treat on a day-to-day basis is coronary artery disease. And that could range from preventive care. So somebody who has had maybe a positive stress test but minimal symptoms and we try to adjust their medications so they feel better without needing a procedure. It requires um, risk factor modification, which we'll talk about, I think, a little bit later. The next range would be patients who are having significant symptoms of angina, where we can go in and unblock arteries, which we often do, whether it's in the cath lab 
with stents or if necessary, uh, proceeding to the cardiac surgery suite where we do advanced bypass surgery. But we also very much focus on, even if a patient has had an event, we see patients um, quite often in the hospital with a new and acute heart attack. Once we take care of the immediate problem by putting a stent in, we then make sure that we follow that patient very closely, make sure that they're on the proper medications. And our main goal is to prevent the next heart attack. Right. Can heart attacks be prevented even if it's been in your family? Yes. That's a great question. And absolutely. And that's really what we do on a day-to-day basis. There's a term and it's called SMURF. And it's not the little blue thing that you play with. What it stands for is standard modifiable risk factors. And there's four of them. Hypertension, high cholesterol, diabetes, and smoking. So those are really identifiable risk factors that many have, and then we all, our job is to modify those risk factors. And how do we do that? Cholesterol, um, we have an armamentarium of medications that we could use to lower cholesterol. Statins being common. Uh, statins have been around for over 30 years, pretty, you know, my career, um, and they've really been groundbreaking in terms of the, both the prevention primary prevention of coronary disease, which means preventing the first heart attack, but also secondary prevention, meaning the need for more stents, another heart attack, bypass surgery. And we've seen a significant reduction in the incidence of not only cardiac disease, but strokes with the use of of statin medications, driving the, what's called the LDL, which is your bad cholesterol. Do you use the statin as a preventive method? Is it a prevention? It's both. So it's it's preventive in a patient who has other risk factors. So I'll give you an example. 50-year-old patient comes in, is a little overweight, has a blood pressure of 150 over 90, and a cholesterol, total cholesterol of 250 with a uh, LDL being the bad cholesterol in 30. So if you look at that patient's risk factor profile, oh, and he has borderline diabetes. So you look at his risk factor profile, never had an event, generally feels good, goes about his day, maybe doesn't exercise a lot, right? So come to see me and says, you know what? I have a family history. I want to make sure that I don't have a heart attack. What can you do for me? So in that patient, we'll say, okay, first we got to get your blood pressure down prescribe, and there's multiple multitude of medications that we can prescribe. So in that sense, it's preventive for that patient. So this sense, it is preventive. I need to know, and you said in the beginning, you have some procedures that you're doing at the hospital that are really cutting edge, no pun intended. Some of them are involved atrial fibrillation ablations and some newer techniques that we're doing with AFib ablations. There's also uh, recently a procedure that we did to prevent the need for a pacemaker in a uh, young patient who's in her 30s, who at most places they would need to put a pacemaker in. And we were able to provide this very unique, first in the country procedure for this particular patient. Other procedures that we're doing that are done mostly at tertiary hospitals, hospitals in Boston, that we do a large volume of here, such as valvular heart disease, advanced coronary work in terms of interventional cardiology for patients who previously may have needed bypass surgery or them with um, 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 unblocked the arteries without needing surgery. So one of the things that your department is known for at South Coast 
is actually helping people um, so that they don't need a pacemaker, which is an amazing thing. How do you do that? So this is a very unique procedure, and it's really mostly for young patients who may need a pacemaker. We, we know that with pacemakers, although they're life-saving, it does require implanting two wires most of the time, sometimes three, into the heart, and then hooked up to a pacemaker generator, which sits in the uh, left upper chest. For an older person, although no older person wants to have it, it's, it's somewhat accepted. And given the life expectancy for this patient could live out the rest of their life with a pacemaker. If you implant that same pacemaker in a younger person, somebody say in their 30s, that patient will have that device for the rest of their life. They'll undoubtedly need the, le- the wires changed, the, the pacemaker itself changed. They might have vascular complications over many years. When you're faced with a patient who may need a pacemaker at a young age, it becomes a, it's a very big decision. Recently, we had a young woman who had passed out. She wore a monitor and she had up to 12 second pauses, meaning that her heart stopped for about 12 seconds. She came into our hospital. Wow. We evaluated her yeah. and it looked like she was going to need a pacemaker. Dr. Sood, one of our electrophysiologists who was involved in the case, uh, did some research and found that there was a procedure where one could actually map the area that's overstimulating the heart to cause the heart. It's it's somewhere, it's what's called the, the vagal input into the heart, which is, gives a negative feedback to slow the heartbeat down, that you could map the area within the heart where that impulse is coming from and using a special catheter ablate that area. It's a very, very sophisticated procedure. And I emphasize most patients who typically as you get into your 70s and 80s, it's that's the natural history that the heart rate will slow down and they'll need a pacemaker. But for somebody who's very young, the mechanism is very different. And so this procedure, which we've done on one, and now I just learned tonight, a second patient is really groundbreaking. And this Great. young woman is now back at work. We have her wearing a special small little implantable monitor just to make sure that she doesn't have any breakthrough episodes. And she's, she's teaching and she's come to some of our cardiac events to really promote this procedure. So it really was, you know, we were very proud of this. Let me ask you about advanced interventional cardiology. When this is used and what are some of the procedures you're doing and for what reason? So in our advanced cardiac interventional lab, We've all know about balloon angioplasty and stenting. That's been around for quite a long time. As our population has gotten older, coronary disease has also advanced. So people nowadays, many people are older. We're being more aggressive in terms of people in their 70s, 80s who are having incapacitating angina and their failed medical therapy who need these procedures. Many of them may have needed bypass surgery in the past. They may be too old and too frail to have that. So we can offer them what's called multivessel intervention. So what's the end result of that? Patients' arteries, the plaque that we're trying to get rid of, so to speak, with stents, often is very calcified. So when you have a calcified plaque, it's like trying to trying to get rid of a rock. And a rock, if you can imagine just going in with a balloon and a stent that you try to push that up against a rock-hard artery, it's not going to give way. In other words, the artery won't expand. So we do have special tools now to debulk that calcification. One is what's called rotational atherectomy, where you go in with a 
high-speed drill. Another is called CSI, which is another type of atherectomy uh, device. And the third, which is and uh, started about a year ago, it's called IVL or intravascular lithotripsy. So I think everybody has heard about lithotripsy for kidney stones, where you go in and use ultrasonic waves to blast the kidney stones. Now we can actually do that with a small catheter in the heart to get rid of the calcification. That's amazing. Then that softens up the plaque. So then you can go in with your balloon and stent and expand the artery. It's amazing. So it's really allowed us to treat arteries that previously we couldn't treat that would have to go for bypass surgery. All right. I have a question and I'm, I'm, it's off the subject, but it's on the subject. Okay. We talk about the calcification of the heart and the arteries, the hardening, if you will. Yep. And spiritually, we hear about people dying of a broken heart. And I guess my question to you is, is there anything to that? Can our emotions affect our heart so that it, it doesn't want to work anymore? That's actually, that's a great question. There is something, uh, and it's a known entity, and we actually see it more and more frequently in this day and age, which I think is directly related to the times that we're living in. We're all under constant stress, and whether it's internal within personal life or just external from all the forces that are going on, and we're certainly not going to get political here, but um, you know, we see it every day. And there are people that come in with symptoms that very much mimic the traditional I say traditional heart attack, the one that's caused by an artery that all of a sudden blocks off and causes disruption of blood flow. So we'll see patients like that. We'll think that they're having just, you know, the typical heart attack. We'll go in to do a cardiac catheterization and find out that there's no significant blockage. So there might be like a 30% blockage or 40%. Then you'll take a picture of the heart pumping and you'll see that there's a significant area of the heart that's not moving. It's what's called a stress heart attack or a name called that comes from the physician discovered who was from Japan. It's called Takasubo cardiomyopathy. Another term for it is called broken heart syndrome or a stress cardiomyopathy. It's it's quite common when the weeks that I cover working in the hospital, we see at least, if not more. The positive thing is that when you see this damage, it's usually reversible reversible when you start on medication that both um, work to help the heart heal. And usually patients are better after a few weeks. But it's interesting. We actually have seen several cases of people coming back two or three years. Um, and there may be some genetic predisposition to it. There's actually, there was a study that we were sending some patients to. We were the exact participants, but contributing patients to that was being done out of Brown. I'm not sure if it's still uh, ongoing or not. But just looking at are there related factors and, and are there predictors besides stress for people who come in with this syndrome? Right. And that brings me to the question of how do we protect our heart and build those heart healthy habits? So the best is to do to modify the risk factors that you can modify, such as don't smoke. And if you smoke, quit. And it sounds cliche, but Smoking is probably one of the real delineating factors of whether you're going to have a heart attack at any age or not. And we often, unfortunately, will see people in their 30s, 40s, um, many of those people, I would say the majority are smokers. And so I think that's particularly a very major risk factor at all young. 
Um, treating the cholesterol, uh, statins, um, lifestyle changes are important. So some people who come to us, they may be in their 40s, their LDL, their bad cholesterol is up a little bit, but they don't have any other real, their blood pressure is fine, they don't smoke. We'll work with them to make some lifestyle changes first, right. and then if necessary, go on medication. All right, now in the beginning, I asked you about having heart disease in your family and if that was doable and if you could still prevent heart disease. And your wife, Judy, is with us, and you've had a family history of heart disease. So explain that, Judy, and how it impacted your life. So my dad died at age 36 of a heart attack. He had his first heart attack at 29. Um, and granted, this was many years ago, the medicine was very different. His father died at 60. His brother died at 48 of a heart attack. And my other uncle was in his 70s, I believe. Then my mom's side of the family, her dad was in his 60s. Her brother was in his 70s. Um, and her mom also died. Of, my grandmother also died of, of a heart attack. Um, my mom has had some heart problems. She's had stents and she's had a valve replacement, but she's 85 and she's doing well. And just finished wow. her first year of college. So <laughs> that, that's yeah, good. great. But that's another story. That's right, it is. So we grew up, the way it impacted me, besides the emotional side of losing your dad when you're 10 years old, we grew up early on. Back then, the only thing, the only thing the doc, I mean, this is what I remember. The only thing the doctors really said was that my dad, he wasn't a drinker and he wasn't overweight and he was physically active, but he did smoke and he was told to stop smoking. And his his response was, I don't drink and I don't, <laughs> that's what I do. So he did not quit smoking, which he should have, but that's another story. But he also had some, you know, genetic things going on to cause a 29-year-old to have a heart attack. Yeah, have you had to make any changes in your life so because of this? We grew up, knowing that smoking was not good for you. And we also grew up knowing that um, to stay away from fried foods and that a healthy diet was best and that keeping active was best. So we always had that mentality of those, those were important things. So it impacted me in that one, I know that life is really short and you have to really take care of yourself and those you love and I think just really appreciate life. Yeah. So, I mean, that's kind of the emotional side. Yeah. I have kind of a fun question. Do you feel safer because you're married to a cardiologist? Well, he <laughs> was going to go in another field. And I said, no, you have to go into this field. I did push him into cardiology <laughs> for better or for worse. And he has helped out with some family issues. So <laughs> that's been nice. Yeah. So, yeah. So I feel like, I feel like we were kind of raised because we knew that family history that a healthy lifestyle was really what you had to, you know, helped. You know, we you can't really help the genetics. And I mean, I was on blood pressure meds by the time I was 30 and um, and was eating fairly healthy, you know, as healthy as a 30-year-old eats and, you know, not smoking and not staying active. So I know it was genetics. And right now I am still on, I mean, I'm on blood pressure meds. I'm on a med for cholesterol, not a statin, but that's another issue. Dr. Cohen, you know, when Judy's talking about having a healthy lifestyle now, what does that mean? Now, of course, it means different things to different people. She might have a very different diet 
than someone else you work with. So how do you determine, really, should it be the Mediterranean diet? Should it be no gluten, no dairy? What should it be? So I think we the two of us have settled on, because I, I also have family history and I have, you know, some other risk factors. And, um, and Judy's actually a very good, she's actually a better influence on, on me than I am on myself. And although I'm, and I'm you know, be honest, um, although I'm, I'm very good about giving advice, sometimes I'm not as good at following my, my own advice. And I think, you know, physicians in general, I think, don't think that we're, we're, we're different and we're not. Um, and so um, and, uh, I te- she tends to have me eat healthier if I were left on my own devices, although I'm, I'm aware of what I should eat, I think that, that she, is, she has made my lifestyle. Like a diet, I would say, Judy, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, we, we pretty much try this diet. Um, I, I'm pretty picky about what I eat. And so I think Judy's really helped in, you know, in that regard. But uh, what do you think? Yeah, I would say, I mean, I have cut back on your red meat, our red meat. <laughs> we don't do fried foods. Uh, I, I mean, I don't really, I, I would say it's closest to a Mediterranean diet, but mostly whole foods that, you know, the less processed, the better. Yeah. What, Dr. Cohen, what about exercise? Again, that varies. Some people can run five miles. Some people can walk two miles. I mean, every, every heart is different. How do you know? Exercise is, is, is really important. And I often emphasize this to my patients, which they are. Um, and physical activity is, is probably the most important thing besides reducing those other risk factors for heart health. And that may be walking 30 minutes a day for five days a week, getting on a bike, um, doing some, going to a gym. And I will often say, because especially some of my older patients, they tend to be very sedentary and I'm constantly emphasizing to them the need for exercise. But I'd like Judy to sort of talk about her exercise regimen because it's it's pretty much again an example of how you can how you can alter your genetics a little bit. You want to talk about your CrossFit? I started after the pandemic. I I joined a new gym at, because I I just needed to get motivated. Sure, and it's, Judy. it's high in intensity, but I, I joined a CrossFit gym, and. Um, my when I went to my physical and they did all my blood work, my blood work has been the best it's been in forever. So and I really attribute it to the gym and the actual exercise program that they set. And what I like about the gym that, that we're, I'm going to is multi age and every every activity is is scaled to whatever you can do. So it's not so any age can do it. And it's been fun. We were we were actually able to get her off one of her so she's on a few minutes for blood pressure. We were able to get her off. Yeah. I say we her. I I asked her to speak with her primary, and her primary was able to stop one of her blood pressure meds, yeah. which was pretty fantastic. Yeah, that is great. I feel like as you get older, people start saying, "Oh, you don't have to do as much," and I I actually think that that's being sedentary is not the way to go. I think you should do, you know, like I know when my mom was having problems and she was like, but I get tired. And I'm like, it's actually okay to, to exercise to the point where you're tired, Mm -hmm. you know, like 
we're kind of meant to use our bodies and at the end of the day be really tired. Like you're not supposed to go to bed wide awake, you know? (laughs) Right. Dr. Cohen, do you feel that people can check out their hearts with their primary care physician, or do you think that as a preventive measure, they should go to a cardiologist as well? I think both. I think most, most patients who perhaps just have some hypertension and a little bit of diabetes, I think it's perfectly fine for them to see their primary doc and make sure that their blood pressure is well controlled, that their, their diabetes is, they're eating right. I think if somebody is having, certainly having symptoms suggestive of heart disease, they should see a cardiologist if they have an abnormality on their EKG. Or I think the person that has multiple risk factors and a strong family history probably should at least check in maybe once a year with the car. Um, mm-hmm. A really good job in terms of preventing or what we call preventive cardiology. So I think it's a mixed a mixed picture. So if you were talking to someone who was a teenager or 20 years old, yep. what would you say to them about, they come to you and they say, Dr. Cohen, I want my heart to be strong for the rest of my life. Great. That's a great question. And believe it or not, every so often we do see a younger person in their 20s for maybe not for chest pain, although some of the times we see that chest pain is probably not cardiac or we see for palpitations. So I have that opportunity to talk to younger people. And what I tell them is this is the time to start. And some of them are already smoking. And I say, do not smoke, do not vape. Vaping is just as bad as smoking. You're a little overweight and you have to be very sensitive. You're talking to a 20 year old, you know, yeah. Yes. You say you're a little overweight, even though they might be 50 pounds overweight. You need to start exercising every day. You need to cut out on the pizza. You need to not go out to the bar and have three beers because that's loaded. And, And I will often say, if you can make some of these changes now, you'll be much happier in the future when you'll really start thinking about it. And, you know, you may not be thinking about it now because you're 20 years old and at 20, you think you're, you're invulnerable, but you'll be very happy when you're 40 or 50 or 60. Yeah. There's a lot of sort of controversy around food and what should we eat? What shouldn't we eat? Dan Buettner wrote a book called Blue Zones and it's, he traveled around the world to find the people who live the healthiest, um, five different places. And what he found was that people who live the longest and the healthiest eat a plant-based diet. That's not for everybody. What's your feeling about this from a cardiology standpoint? Well, I think as long as, you know, if you eat a, um, uh, A, you're eating because not everybody, well, not everybody can, you know, eat a plant-based diet because people, you know, there's only so much. I I think we're all either benefit or we're victims of, of what our sort of, what our taste buds, you know, like, and we all know too, that certain cultures enjoy salty foods, for example, you know, uh, here in Fall River, it's, you know, the Portuguese culture, you know, and, uh, you know, I have a Jewish background and, you know, it's the salty, you know, the salty chicken, you know, smoked fish, et cetera. And, and that's kind of what you're, what you've grown up with and what you taste. So you have to sort of kind of get around that. And, you know, if you just can't, eat just a pure plant-based diet, you're, you're going to starve, right? So I think it's finding that right mix. I think ideally, if you can be on a plant-based diet, making sure that you're taking in enough iron because that's, that's very important and getting all the nutrients, then that's great. Otherwise, I think you want to go to a diet that's healthy, 
but you, you can you can live with. And I think one of the tough things is somebody to say, well, all right, I'm going to just radically change everything. I'm going to eliminate it all and do this. And they might be able to do something like completely vegan for two weeks, but then that may not work. Now, some people I've seen, I've seen people make total changes and I'm not discouraging right. that. So I don't want it to come across saying, don't bother. But it's saying, try to do something that you can live with for the rest of your life. And, and also tell patients to, you know, if, one night you go out and you've been really good and you've gotten your cholesterol down to an LDL of 50 and you're taking your meds and you cheated and had a hamburger. Don't come back. Don't come back and beat yourself Absolutely. up. You know, you got to live life. Yeah. I think that's all very important. I want to go back to the surgical procedures for a moment. And that is if someone feels or is told they need a procedure, should they research it? Should they get more than one opinion? Should they watch videos? <laughs> What do you think? That's a loaded question. Um, yes, I it don't is. think for every, I think everybody has a right and should be informed. And knowledge always helps. I think sometimes overreading and overthinking can also hinder. And I've seen, I've seen both extremes. I love it when I actually have a patient who I'm talking to, whether it's about a procedure or about a med, who engages me in a conversation and said, well, you know, I was thinking about this, I read about this, and I, and then I can have an intelligent conversation and counter that. What sometimes gets frustrated is when people overread things or read things that maybe are might be out, outside the mainstream and start talking about stuff that doesn't have a lot of scientific basis. That can be very can be frustrating because you're trying to give them evidence-based um, information. And then it's sort of being countered. I, I think as far as getting second opinion, I think anybody's entitled to get a second opinion. Some things I think are a little more straightforward than others. I mean, if you're having chest pain, you've had a positive stress test, you're failing medication. It's pretty clear that you need a catheterization. And most cardiologists, whether you go for a second, third or fourth opinion, are going to tell you that. So I think it's, I really think it's case, you know, case by case. I think for the majority of things that we do in cardiology, again, it's fairly straightforward and, and mostly evidence-based. So I'm not sure if getting a second opinion is always necessary, but it's always an option. And if and I'll say this, and I've been doing this for a long time, somebody says to me, hey, you know, doc, would you mind if I get a second opinion? I, I'm always saying, you're perfectly fine. And then after that, if you want to come back to me, um, you know, to do either do your procedure or continue to follow with me. If you see the other person and you like what they are saying better and you, you know, and I completely respect that. I never discourage anybody from getting a second opinion. That's great. What would you like to leave our listeners with? What is okay. your message? My message is if you are having symptoms that are suggestive of coronary disease of a blockage, even if you're not sure, I think you really need to get medical attention. And whether it's just make an appointment to see a cardiologist as an outpatient, or if you wake up in the middle of the night and you're having crushing chest pain that's lasting an hour and say, well, I'll just take some antacids and go to bed and come back, you know, and see if it's gone tomorrow. Please don't ignore symptoms because unfortunately we, we see this also every week that we're in the hospital, somebody, somebody coming in a day or so after they've had their heart attack, it's called the late presentation. And there's, Although there's things that we can do, we can do a lot more when we see it right off, right off the bat. 
we have a common term in, in cardiology. It's a little cliche, but it works and time is muscle. So when you're having, you're having a heart attack, the quicker you get in, the quicker we can get that artery yes. open, the more heart muscle is salvaged. And unfortunately, also during the pandemic, we did see a lot of people who just stayed home because they were afraid to go into the hospital and, and get treated. And then a month or two later, we would see them come back much sicker than they would have been if, uh, if they had seen us. So my message is, please don't deny, please don't ignore Thank you. Judy, your message. My message would be that you can't, you know, genetics is genetics and you can only do so much with that, but you can be kind to your body and your health in as many ways as possible by eating healthy and, um, and staying active. And I think it's just really important to stay active. Yeah. Dr. Cohen, you obviously love what you do. Why? What is it you love so much about what you do? I think what I like about, what I love about cardiology is that you can really make a difference in, in people's lives, whether it's back in the throat and the heart attack. When we see somebody in the hospital or in the emergency room in the throes of a heart attack and we can get in and, and try to fix, fix their artery and then uh, I'm part of the critical care team and we take care of them afterwards. Sometimes they're very sick and if their heart's back, back, back to health and, um, and then see him back in the office. And then what I also love is when I see that same sick patient who's now smiling, sitting there with their spouse in the office, and we're talking about next steps, about exercise, about cardiac rehab, about getting their cholesterol down, about adjusting their medications. But seeing that that person who was in the throes of the sickest of the sick and now seeing them better and then moving on with their lives, really satisfying. Yeah. satisfying. I think really with cardiology, and that's why I picked yeah. it years ago, I think you can really make a difference in people's lives. And that's what I, I love about it. Thank you both very much, Dr. Cohen, Peter Cohen, and Judy Cohen. Thank you. It was enlightening and inspiring and informational. Thank you. I'm Patricia Raskin. Thank you for listening to Healthy Aging with South Coast Health. To subscribe to this podcast, visit www.southcoast.org forward slash healthy dash aging. While you are there, we want to hear from you. Please take the time to complete a quick survey so we can learn more about the topics for upcoming episodes that you are most interested in to live a healthy lifestyle. Thank you to our hosts, Patricia Raskin and South Coast Health. This podcast is brought to you by creative content developer Raskin Resources Productions and produced by Virtually You.